Discus listeners, I have a special treat for you. Remember Dr. Kathleen Martin Guinness from episode five? We talked all about the International Spinal Cord Injury Scientific Exercise Guidelines. Well, she agreed to stick around and talk with me about health behavior change theory too. And seriously, this is her bag and it's important stuff for PTs to know. If we can't do a great job of helping our patients with spinal cord injury incorporate healthy physical activity behaviors into their lives, like what is it we think we're doing anyway, right? So stick around as we talk behavior change theory and spoiler alert, she gives some specific resources with concrete action items at the end. Enjoy. Okay, so Kathleen, can we talk about behavior change theory? Um, this, you know, it's an area. Obviously, I I am familiar with your work. I know it's an area that you've done a lot of work in, and um, and I have questions. Um, and I'd, I'd love to give you some context of where I'm coming from, and 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 I think where a lot of my PT colleagues are coming from as well. So, um, my clinical practice is primarily with people with chronic disabilities. Um, many with spinal cord injury and in an outpatient setting. And I found that my my background in physical therapy has prepared me well to be able to advise and train my patients in the like what and how to perform physical activities really of all sorts, but to have a meaningful impact you know, most of these types of activities need to be long-term changes. And, and what I've struggled with more is how best to partner with my patients to help them incorporate changes that they want to make into their lives longer term. And when I talk to other physical therapists out there, um, I don't think I'm alone in that struggle. And so the question of how anyone makes any life change is a complex one with many possible answers. Uh, and so it, you know, it's important that we clinicians, and I have a feeling here that I'm preaching to the choir on this, but I think it's important that we clinicians don't just tell someone to go about making a life change the way that we think we would do it. Um, you know, we need to be thinking about what does our patient need to make this change if they decide to do so. Um, and, and so from my standpoint, I think that you know, having frameworks for how we think about these kinds of problems is an important way to navigate that complexity. And so when I was in school, I learned about the transtheoretical model of change, and this is the framework that I still see largely referenced in physical therapy literature. And in recent years, I've been seeing the health action process approach used more frequently in the research literature for other fields or from other fields, and in including some of your research. And, and so frankly, I see your work, you and your body of work as a go-to resource on this topic, and so I'm hoping that you can um, help reconcile this a little bit. Can, can you talk about some of the differences between the two models? Sure. So the trans-theoretical model came out of smoking cessation literature in the 1980s, and it basically outlines uh, a series of stages that people have to pass through in order to uh, change a behavior, whether it's starting exercise, quitting smoking, or eating healthfully. Uh, the model basically says that um, we can tell how, if people are moving through the stages based on their self-efficacy, based on the pros and cons they see for the behavior, uh, based on their intentions and their, their actual behavior. Uh, the Health Action Process Approach Model, or HAPA, that's a model that uh, came, uh, I'm going to say, the, the late 90s from Schwarzer uh, in Germany. And uh, it's it's very closely based on, or it, it has its basis in Bandura's social cognitive theory. Um, and Schwarzer's been kind of clever insofar as he says that there's both, uh, he does delineate stages within the theory, three of them, but he also says that the theory can be used, both stage theory and as sort of as, as a continuous 
theory. He, so he's been a little clever not saying people need to pass through all of these stages in order to change their behavior the way that trans-theoretical model does. Um, but uh, there is sort of implicit in that theory this idea that uh, people fall into one of three stages, pre-intenders, intenders, and actors. Great. Well, then it's interesting. I've seen, as I've looked at the um, HEPA model, um, I'm I'm intrigued by this pre-intenders, intenders, and actors. I've also seen the, the pre-intenders referred to as non-intenders. Yeah. And I think like maybe, and maybe this is the pessimist in me or something, but I like the non-intenders um, moniker maybe better than the pre-intenders moniker. That, it, that I think one of the things I like about HEPA, but please tell me if I'm misunderstanding the, the model, um, is that I think it does a better job of, of maybe acknowledging that, you know, really the, the, any person deciding whether or not to make a health behavior change, or I guess a behavior change of any sort, they're the one who needs to weigh all of the pros and cons. And they may be doing this consciously or unconsciously, but they're, they're the only ones who really know what all the, the pieces are. And, um, and I think that the HEPA model does a nice job of really acknowledging and respecting that only that person knows what the right action is, right? And, and also that a reasonable person might decide not to pursue a behavior change at all after they weigh all of those variables. And, and somehow the non-intender label like speaks to me in that way of it's not just, it's not like, oh, well, you're, you're going to make that behavior change if you know it's good for you. You just don't know it's the right thing yet, you know, as opposed to like, no, you've made a decision not to on some level, but maybe you'll move into an intender phase or phase isn't the right, the right word, but a, a place of being an intender um, at another time. Am I misunderstanding? Yeah, I do. I think what you're hitting on, Rachel, are two key things that have been identified as real weaknesses of the trans-theoretical model. One being is that it's oversimplified, uh, and two being that people don't necessarily change in the linear fashion that the trans-theoretical model suggests. So um, the trans the, we're at the point that many scientists have suggested that we completely throw out the trans-theoretical model. Uh, and in fact, I've written an exercise psychology textbook. We, this year, we just published the fifth edition of it. And in it, this edition, we decided to pull the trans-theoretical model out of the exercise psychology textbook because it has been um, pretty much discarded uh, from, from the field of, of behavior change. And that boils down to the fact that it's trans-theoretical model is so wonderfully simple and, and so basic, but behavior change is so complex. And as you point out, HAPA, the HAPA model's got a whole bunch of other constructs that the TTM doesn't have reflecting that complexity. And, uh, you know, people don't change in a linear fashion. We don't start out th necessarily thinking about a behavior and then, or not thinking about a behavior, then thinking, then doing, and, and so on, as the trans-theoretical model suggests. Um, the other shortcoming of the trans-theoretical model is that despite its Despite the best efforts, it could never conclusively be shown that if you give people in certain stages certain behavior change techniques, that's going to lead to a change in behavior. Like the, the TTM people tried to identify what's needed to help a person in, in pre-contemplation move to contemplation or a person in action move to maintenance. They tried to do that for years and they, they 
couldn't do that. And then that really threw into question the whole value of putting people in these, these discrete stages. Whereas the HAPA model, and perhaps even beyond the HAPA model, the a framework that's really come into, um, come into its own and it's being used quite widely is the behavior change wheel. That, um, certainly recognizes the complexity of behavior change, identifies 93 or 94 different behavior change techniques, but specifically links them to the factors that are identified in a specific person that are helping or hindering their behavior change. So, yeah, that's a long-winded way of saying I completely agree with you that HAPA has that complexity, that TTM doesn't, um, and behavior change is just so darn complex. We can't just describe it by, or we can't explain it through identifying just a, a few key stages. Well, so I guess now you've you've raised another question in, in my mind. So now the behavior change wheel versus the HEPA model, like how, how do those compare? What are differences there? Yeah, so I think it's probably first off me to declare that I've, I've never wedded myself to any particular theory in my career. I really like the HEPA model for the work I do now because um, – uh, just because I think it's, we have so many people who have good intentions to be active and they can't make that leap to being the active, to being active. And the HAPA model deals with that really well. The HAPA model throws in some important factors to help people bridge the intention behavior gap. Um, what the behavior change wheel does is it's not a theory like HAPA or trans theoretical model or theory of planned behavior. What it is, is it's, it's an amalgamation of all the factors across all behavior change theories that have been identified as influencing behavior. And then it, uh, it, it prescribes for those of us who want to develop behavioral interventions, you know, physiotherapists, uh, exercise programmers, and so on. It prescribes sort of a step-by-step way of identifying the factors that are limiting a person's behavior, shows us how to put them into sort of theoretical boxes, and then links those boxes with specific behavior change techniques. So what, what you can then do from there is, let's say, um, what I just told you, you know, I'm finding that I've got lots of people who've got the best intentions to be active, but they're not following through. The um, behavior change wheel helps me get at the causes of that. It identifies some specific things they can do to translate their intentions into action, and lo and behold, many of those things are things that are in the HAPA model, like action planning, self-regulation. So then when I design my theory, I, I know what the things are I need to change. They fit within the HAPA model, and I can still use the HAPA model because the HAPA model tells me what stuff I should be measuring while I'm implementing my behavior change techniques. So I know that's complicated, but does that kind of make sense that we can still use these theories, but the behavior change wheel helps us point to which theory might be best to use and why? Uh, so, in in fact, it sounds like then the two are a bit um, complementary, that they can work, you can work with both of them together um, as you think about how to proceed either with a patient or patient population. Yeah, that's yeah. it. And it's scientist or a theory geek like me, you'll always want to have a theory guiding it, and I can still layer that theory on. Or if you're a clinician or a, a public health promoter, and you're not so fussed about the testing the theory or the theoretical piece, you can still use the behavior change wheel to figure out exactly what behavior change technique you want to do, and you can have the confidence that when you make that decision, it's based on, it is based on theory behind the scenes and also on evidence. Why, by how the, the, 
behavior change technique is linked to the problem you're trying to solve. Excellent. Boy, I've got some reading to do. Um, so I, I, guess I, have, I have one more question for you then. So can you, what advice do you have for PTs? And so now we'll think about like clinical, you know, PTs in the clinic um, out there who may want to incorporate more updated behavior change theories or models into their practice. So say as they help their patients with spinal cord injuries, since this is the Spinal Cord Injury SIGS podcast, but so we'll say patients with spinal cord injury with incorporating long-term physical activity of some sort into their lives. Like how, how, how can these more updated theories help them and, and tools help them do that? Yeah, well, um, I'm going to point you to a couple of resources. First of all, on my lab's website, so on sciactioncanada.ca, we have the, the proactive SCI toolkit. And it's an intervention, a behavior change intervention developed using the HAPA model and the behavior change wheel that's uh, specifically for physiotherapists who want to change physical activity behavior in their clients with spinal cord injury. So the manual provides sort of a, a how-to of how to do that. And then we have an accompanying paper that describes how we went through all those theoretical processes to, to make it. So I, I think that gives like a, an evidence based example to see uh, to see how theory can be used to to or how it can be implemented in PT practice. Uh, and then I'm gonna suggest same thing that you go to the, the website for the behavior change wheel uh, and just see what I've been talking about, how uh, identifying barriers and opportunities uh, can can be linked to behavior change techniques. Um, I, I recognize that over time, behavior change has got more complicated than it used to be, but I, I think that's a good thing. I think uh, for a long time, people underestimated how difficult behavior change was. And as you said at the outset of, of our discussion, wow, it's tough. And uh, I think those of us who are trying to help people change their behavior, I think we have a responsibility just to appreciate how complex it is. <laughs> yeah. If it was easy, we would have all done it by now. Yep. That's right. right. <laughs> Um, well, that is just terrific. I'm so I'm just tickled to be able to finish up with some some concrete tools that that myself as well as other PTs listening can can use in the clinic tomorrow. Thank you for that. My pleasure. Well, well gee, Kathleen, thank you so much for this extra extra conversation. Um, this has been really a, a treat for me. And um, again, I'm looking I'm looking forward to digging into these resources that you've mentioned already. Thanks again for, for the opportunity, Rachel. And thank you listeners for joining us. I hope you'll come back and join us and listen next time. I'll be talking to uh, Milap Sandhu. We'll be going back to our topic of neuromodulation. And he and I will be discussing acute intermittent hypoxia and spinal cord injury rehabilitation. Talk to you then.